Hey, welcome everybody to the Luke Brosterhouse Performance Podcast. I'm excited about this uh, discussion with Chris Puckett, former US ski team member and all around just great guy. Uh, someone I've learned a lot from over the years, just talking to about his experiences and uh, thought that some of his experiences and thoughts would be um, just beneficial for, for anybody to hear. Um, had a great discussion and uh, some of the stuff that comes out in this discussion is really, really cool from a coaching standpoint, from a parenting young athlete standpoint, just kind of how he handled uh, his kids were both successful ski racers and um, kind of how he handled transitioning from being an athlete into being a successful uh, human. Essentially, he's a successful financial advisor and uh, just a good guy, um, well-rounded, very um, involved in the community that he lives in, and um, just a just a neat, neat guy. And certainly appreciative that he took time to to chat with me and um, let me ask him a few questions. So uh, here he is. For some of the people that might be listening to this that don't know your athletic background, you know, I would love to just kind of have you share as much of that as you're willing to in terms of growing up skiing and um, just kind of the 30,000 foot view of how you progressed as a young athlete into, you know, yeah, I was, the national team. I was a junior ski racer like a lot of kids around here at the Winter Sports Club here in Steamboat. I did it in Crested Butte. We had a, a really small group of skiers. My mom helped start the ski team there when I was about six or seven. Seven was my first time I ever raced, and my first race was here in Steamboat, actually. But just a junior racer along with my younger brother. And um, I had another brother who was significantly younger than we were, but my brother Casey and I both grew up racing in Crested Butte, Colorado. And uh, junior racing, but we didn't have a high school in Crested Butte at the time. So we would have to go back and forth to Gunnison had, had we gone to high school in the Crested Butte area and tried to stay in Crested Butte. We would have been busing back and forth and the skier would have been closed. So my parents looked for other options for us. And one option that came up was Burke Mountain Academy in Vermont. So we went to school there. I was the first one to go out. I was two years older than Casey, but he ended up coming there too. Um, so I went to a ski academy, fully focused on one sport, although we played soccer and, and ran every morning uh, in the fall and, and we did some cross country running. We were mostly focused on ski racing and ski racing results with the end goal of hopefully making on the US ski team and an Olympics and hopefully Olympic medals and all that stuff. That was a big dream. But yeah, so that was just my whole focus. I wanted to to be a World Cup skier from the time I was fairly young. In fact, one of the guys that lives here, Jace Romick, he uh, he was on the US ski team racing with Billy Johnson, who won the gold medal in Sarajevo. Mm -hmm. And so Jace was on the team with um, with Billy and they came to Noram downhills in Crested Butte when, when I was a little kid, mm -hmm. I could hear them coming on the course before I could see them by the way they cut through the wind. And I told myself at that point, uh, our ski team had a, a banquet with those guys. I got to meet Jace and I just thought Jace Romick was one of the coolest sounding names from steamboat right. and uh, downhill skier. And then we got to watch Billy in the Olympics later. I knew I wanted to be on the ski team trying to race world cup someday, but didn't necessarily know how to go about that. Right. Uh, but that was a pretty interesting thing. And then, uh, as I was at Burke Mountain Academy, I tried out for the lowest level of the U.S. ski team when I was still hadn't turned 17 when I went to the camp, but I turned 17 during the camp, made the, the lowest level of the national team, um, 
was called the National Training Group. It would, oh, it would be like the D team today. And uh, did that for two seasons. Actually did that for one season and then made the C team a couple years later. Um, had some back issues in between. Uh, ended up racing a lot of NORAMs for a year or so on the C team and then doing some of the smaller tours around Japan, uh, Europa Cups. And mm-hmm. then by the time I was 21, uh, I had made the B team and, and the Olympic team on a year where I wasn't on the, 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 the full national team. I was on the C team before that, but then they had cut us back to what was called a regional team, but mm-hmm. I made qualifications for the Olympic team that year. And so that was when I was 21. And then I skied on the, on the world cup team till I was 31. Um, and in that span, I made two world championship teams, one Olympic team, won four national titles, three overall and one downhill title. Um, won four NORAM titles, won a GS title, two Super G titles and an overall, um, which is that that's that level below World Cup Mm -hmm. and uh, probably raced in, I don't know how many starts, 75, 80 starts on the World Cup between the different events and actually scored World Cup points in every event at one point in my career. Um, and some of the rules changed on when you could score World Cup points. Right. Um, and but but as they were available, I did score World Cup points in slalom, GS, super G, and downhill at one point or another, and ultimately did better in downhill by the end of my career, where I started getting some uh, top thirties, even had a, a, a couple top twenties and mm-hmm. um, World Cup. And then it really wasn't my focus to race downhill my whole career, but it became my last option my last few years. Right. And I had to perform or else I was done, and I didn't really want to be done. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was a great experience to travel the world, uh, met a lot of people that I still see in ski racing. If I go to watch a world cup, I'll, I'll see all kinds of people I used to race with that work for ski companies and, yeah. and still coach and, um, are still involved somehow. Yeah. And so it's, it was a, it was a great experience. And, um, and then obviously trans transferred out of that life. Uh, my kids are still ski racing. We moved here to steamboat in order for my kids to have that opportunity. But uh, it was really an all-encompassing life, I would say, up until my early 30s when, you know, I, I think I was let go when I was 30 years old. Right after we'd had Cole, he was, I think, about just a couple, well, he was about six months old when I got the call that I wouldn't be racing anymore. At least I wouldn't be funded to race from the, the national team level. And that's when we decided to move up here. Mm-hmm. And you coached for a while for the Winter Sports Club. Yeah, so I moved up here we made a little bit of money on a house in Boulder. And so I didn't feel the need to have to work right away when we moved here. And my wife wanted to start a Pilates studio, which was, there was no studios in town at the time. There was one other lady that did some privates in town, but Wendy wanted to start the first studio in town. And she was able to do that pretty much right away. I think December of 01, when we, the first year we moved here, and mm-hmm. she's now got a studio with 12 people working there and they, you know, they're year round and all. I think they, they work five days a week and maybe even Saturday at the class. But the point is, is they have a successful business now that employs a lot of ladies part-time, full-time. And uh, a lot of people yeah. work out there and have a good time there. But that's what we she wanted to do. And I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do. But I knew that the club, they'd already told me before I retired that they would like to hire me as a coach, which told me something that maybe I wasn't going to be racing the next year. <laughs> Word had gotten out, I guess, that that I was going to be getting that word. But anyway, I knew I could coach and I, I realized living here that there was a big need or it was a big deal for the community. There was a lot of kids that liked to ski race. I was right off the world cup and had a lot of knowledge. So I thought I'd share that 
yeah. at least for a year. I ended up liking it and did one more year. Um, but you know, I don't want to necessarily say what they paid coaches back then, but it, it wasn't enough to, to pay the bills here at all. So right. I looked into doing something else for a year and ended up getting back into with the winter sports club as the Alpine director and head coach. And I did that for three years mm-hmm. before transitioning to what I do now. Yeah. Um, so that was so great. How was, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of coaches that, you know, were good athletes. There's not a lot of coaches that were great athletes. And I'm curious, like, I'm always curious with somebody like in your position that was a world-class athlete, what that experience was like going into coaching. Uh, that's a good question because I've, I've had, I've, I've even listened as anyone knows ski racing that knows Phil Mayer when asked if he would coach, he always said he wouldn't have the patience because people wouldn't be, wouldn't work as hard as he did. Hmm. Um, which, you know, I think looking back on it, uh, that comment has a lot of hubris in my opinion, assuming other people didn't have the work ethic he did or whatever. Right. I think there's a lot of people that have shown sense maybe with less of a work ethic that they actually got more victories than he did from America. So including a guy like Bodie Miller, uh, could Bodie be a good coach? Yeah. Bodie would be an amazing coach, but I think, you know, with his horse racing and his kids and he just doesn't have the, the interest in doing it. Um, Phil said he wouldn't have the patience for it. And then I think some people do have a problem knowing how to do it, but not knowing or taking the time to think about how to teach it. And that's probably the, how it gets translated. Right. What you're saying to someone, because everyone hears it differently. And that's been probably, I know it was one of your questions, but that's probably what helped me transition to a life of serving others in what I do. As a financial advisor now, I'm into everyone else's goals, but coaching kids helped me make that transition where not about me anymore at all. And of course, having your own kids Mm -hmm. uh, will teach that to you, hopefully. If you can't learn that lesson from your kids, you're pretty thick yeah right so but that's where um it helped me to see that this is about everyone else what can i do how can i put this so that person can in because i know they can do it they're just not understanding the way i'm putting it so i got to put it another way maybe another coach on the coaching staff can put it better maybe i can tell them and they can put it in a different way and maybe it'll all work somehow but no matter how it worked we had to figure out a way for each kid right Right. And so some people are motivated by fear. Some people are motivated, motivated by anger. Some people are motivated by support. Um, some po- people like to just get a little feedback and work on it on their own. I mean, everyone's mm-hmm. so different. And some people like to see visually and watch you do it. And when I first started coaching, I could actually show them. Um, so that was what helped really make the transition over. But if you're not interested in helping others yet, you, you, you're not going to be a good coach yeah. because while well, I did it, you should have been able to do it. Attitude. Some, some of the better athletes have right. is, is just not going to end up getting anyone anywhere else. So you've really got to be able to shift that mindset, but, but getting into it early and, and really I didn't achieve what I wanted to as a ski racer. I know I raced on the world cup for a long time. I made some teams, but I didn't get the medals and I didn't even get the performances at those big events I wanted. So it was pretty easy for me to say, well, you know, what am I going to focus on? The fact, you know, I can't show anyone my medal. I, I was in the events, but I wasn't real proud of the results. So I was easy for me to shift to, well, I can teach you how to race and I can teach you what to do and some ways to think about it. But, but there's a good chance as any, you could be better than I was. That's how I looked at it. Yeah. Interesting. 
when you look back, what, what do you see as uh, when you're an athlete, what was the one thing looking back now that you could have told yourself to do differently or would you have done differently? That, well, I, I know what it is just right off the bat. I mean, I was a pretty cerebral athlete as far as I like to think about things and had a, you know, a whip. I like to joke with my teammates. I liked being witty, I guess, and telling stories and trying to get people to laugh, all that stuff. One of the curses I had was thinking a lot about things and, and, um, you know, if things were fair or not, and why did that person get to go to that race? And I'm not And so I I'd say the one thing I got caught up in as an athlete was maybe, um, you know, not expectation, but, uh, but, but politics towards the end of my career, mm-hmm. you know, I tried to go to college, I did go to college and I paid for it with the money I made from ski racing while I was ski racing for the national team mm-hmm. and trying to maintain my spot on a team that didn't want you to go to college. Even if it was off season, they still had camps in off season. If I'm skipping teams, well, maybe someone, they're going to hope someone takes my spot. And it was kind of a fight throughout and I was more than happy to just jump in that ring and duke it out with the coaches and you know intellectually I don't know maybe some of my coaches uh, weren't as smart and so it wasn't even a fair fight but the fact is is they had the purse strings and they made decisions on who made teams and who made trips and it was dumb for me to focus or even get involved in those arguments it would have been better just to shut up and do my job because when things didn't go the way I hoped or didn't seem fair, I look back on it now, I probably was just as big a part of that, but didn't know. Right. Because people who make decisions are people too, and they want to feel like they're supported and they want to make decisions for people they like. Yeah. And I think I, I still see coaches now who I, I, you know, we give each other a hug or a high five or whatever. Um, now it's a lot of water under the bridge, but at times it was contentious. Yeah. And so if I was, you know, I give my own kids this advice to realize that politics and performance and all that and business play into all these things, but you know, no one's ultimately going to get in the way of better results. And so that's what they need to focus on is just doing better and not getting caught up in arguing about things and arguing about politics and who did this or who did what. That's that's the biggest thing. Hard to do though. Especially when you're in your, you know, your early twenties and your chemicals are, yeah, a lot higher than they are when you're in your forties and fifties and you have a little more introspection. Um, you know, one of the things I think that um, that I find a lot with athletes that I'm, I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts on is as they transition out of being a world class athlete and their identity is, you know, very much rooted in in that. You, know, you seem to have made a pretty seamless transition out of being an athlete into being a good person, right? Mm-hmm. Being a member of a community, being a, you know a contributor to a community, parenting good kids. Like, what would you say is sort of the thing that was the hardest in that process, and what what what's the thing that you would say kind of came easy to you? Well, it was painful. I mean, you, saw, you say it's seamless, but it was painful to be let go when I was ranked third in the country in downhill with an Olympic year coming up in Salt Lake the next winter, being at the 
maybe not the height of every aspect of conditioning, but as strong as I've ever been, um, you know, was I getting heavier? Yeah, but I raced downhill and that was actually an advantage in some way to be 210 pounds and 215 pounds or whatever. And, um, and, and so I wanted to do that. And when I got cut, I was still capable of running fast downhill the next winter when I went to watch my brother in Salt Lake and people that made that team I had beaten for years before I stopped. And so it was very painful to, you know, you talk about, did you miss it? Well, I missed it when I could do it and I could do it right then. I still could have made that team. So I was a little frustrated about that. But on the other hand, I'm sitting there and actually watching that with my son who's going to watch his uncle. He's only, gosh, he would have only been a year and a half at that point, not even a year and a half. And if there's anything, like I said, that gets you out of thinking about yourself or what you wanted for yourself, it's your son. And you're more worried about changing their diaper that day than whether or not you could have raced in the Olympics that day. But it was a difficult transition. But I think having a family and having a son that you care about made it a lot easier because the focus couldn't be on what you missed out on in your own life. And when I was watching the race, I thought to myself, God, I, I won this NORAM last year on this hill and beat two or three of the guys that are on the downhill team in this downhill today. But, you know, you don't focus on it long. And then pretty much not being able to, you know, physically when you can't do it anymore, it's hard to miss it as much. You know, I, I realize that sport's too dangerous now to, to even do it recreationally uh, with the conditioning. And now it's just not in good enough shape. But I think having a family and then uh, realizing you need to go to work, but then taking some of your knowledge and giving it back to others through the, the, the coaching that we talked about earlier, that made it easier because it's in your face. Those kids show up with, with smiling faces and want to be better. And they're looking at you to help them get better. Right. You know, to sit there and tell them what you would have done or, you know, think about me. Hey, did you, did you know how I did last year? They don't care. And they're into their own lives and they weren't watching what an kind of an old 30 year old skier was doing that wasn't getting in the paper for their results. And just, I mean, it was not an issue for them. Right. So it got pretty quickly. I just started to forget about m any goals I had in the sport anymore. And it was all about theirs. Hmm. That's interesting. So it's interesting. Well, I think for, you know, people looking from the outside, uh, there's a, there's a tremendous, story there. Like there's a tremendous lesson. Cause I don't think a lot of people go easily. You know, I think it's very, very much a part of their identity. It's who they are. It's who they've been told they are. And, uh, you know, I think finding that transition and that transcendence of that is a hard thing to do that. You know, well, you think about it this way too. I mean, I had some people who appreciated the way I skied and they could remember some good races I had, um, not in the world cup level, maybe, but other races, for the most part, I wasn't getting wined and dined on my great performances at big, big times. Like, you know, my brother won the X games a couple of times, the 24 hours of Aspen. There's, those were televised big events. Right. Um, on television, I didn't have a lot of big, big moments in ski racing. And so I didn't feel it's easy to be humble about your career when you didn't, you know, I'm, I grew up racing with Tommy Moe who won the gold medal in Lillehammer and downhill. And, you know, as much as that is a, a, what we all wanted to do, you're now the Olympic gold medalist forever in a sport where people love to meet you and ski with you and ski areas want you to be their ambassador and they want to talk about your result forever. 
I don't blame people that have a hard time getting over that because it's in their face all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Hey, what was that downhill like? You're the best. You're the gold medalist. I mean, you hear that for the rest of your life. Billy Kidd, people want to meet him to this day, talk about his medal. And he's very gracious about it and does a great job with it and represents Steamboat really well. But the point is, is he's got to talk about that medal all the time. Right. And I don't. I don't <laughs> now I wanted to and I tried to. I don't have that same I wouldn't call it a curse, but I don't have that same obligation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the underbelly of success that a lot of people don't realize sometimes is that that identity piece stays with you forever. And you it's know, not necessarily because you're promoting it. Right. I mean, I'd say the biggest self-promoters had to self-promote because no one else is aware of what they did to promote it for them. But you win a gold medal or a silver medal in the world championships, the Olympics and skiing. I mean, it's not mainstream sport. You're not going to get noticed in uh, Iowa maybe or downtown LA, but in ski areas with people that know ski racing and watch that race, there's very recognizable people that will always have that. Franz Klammer is over 60 years old. He can't go to Beaver Creek without people wanting to take pictures with him. Right. So it's with him, like you said, forever. Yeah. And it's pluses and minuses. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny, you know, for some people, Billy, Billy Johnson had a tough life after his gold medal. It was okay for a while, but it really was tough not too long after. And then you've got people that have made great, great transitions. I think some of the people in ski racing, and that's my, what I know most. And so I'll just say that. I think it goes for a lot of individual sports. And it could be for a lot of people in team sports as well. But I think a lot of people in individual sports, ski racing in particular, it can be so difficult during your career and so uncomfortable and so cold. And you're dealing with training when you can't feel your face. And you go up and do it day after day anyway for years. And then when you go into something else, and I think some of the most successful people I know in business uh, as lawyers or agents or whatever were ski racers that did not get what they wanted. And I would say most of my friends think I got what I wanted by being on the national team for 10 years. And there's another level to that and, and trying to be the best. And, mm -hmm. I, and I never achieved that. But, but those guys think that making the national team was what we all wanted to do. And they applied the same lessons of life and responsibility and initiative and obli you know, obligation and, to their lives, their yeah. educations and their jobs after that. And they become really successful. And sometimes I, I have to say I was envious of the ones that did let themselves out of the sport because they they thought they had to leave earlier than maybe they even had to but they left and they they applied that same passion and love to something else and they became really good at it yeah it's interesting yeah you know like a friend of mine i went to the 92 olympics robbie parisian height of his career at that point just got 16th in the olympic gs as a 21 year old and quit the next day because he wanted to go be an orthopedic surgeon with his dad and now he's been an orthopedic surgeon for 20 years, 25, 30 years. He's very successful. had done great. I know a guy like Tommy Moe has, has done what he's wanted to do. He runs heli ski trips and he's ambassador for Jackson Hole and he's enjoying his life. But, you know, as, as someone in a profession who's really made something of themselves in that new profession, I'd say my friend Robbie did pretty well as an orthopedic surgeon. Right. And I don't think anyone asks him about his career because no one knows to ask him about it. So he's fully focused on his new on his new career, yeah, or his second career, I'd say. Yeah. You you've obviously been around, and this is you know kind of in line with with what you're um, just talking about. And this is something that I've thought about a lot and wanted to ask you. You've been around a lot of 
successful athletes, right? Is there, is there something that you would find consistent throughout each one of those people? Like, is there something that, um, is there, is there a certain characteristic that you would say is sort of a hallmark of those few individuals that you saw at the top of their game? That's interesting. I, I think if I look at, you know, guys like Tommy and, and Bodie, Bodie who turns out to be a pretty thoughtful guy, but, but the perception from people on the outside looking in, even people that were on the team with him, they're pretty private in some ways, Bodie is at least. Mm-hmm. Tommy, I don't know if he's private, but, but one of the things you wondered about was it didn't seem like they were putting a lot of thought in retrospect, I think Bodie was. But Tommy certainly didn't give you the appearance he was thinking too much about anything mm-hmm. uh, with respect to the sport. Um, he just was go. Uh, and and didn't seem to be worried a whole lot about overthinking things, right. and that's something that you know you got guys like my friend Robbie Parisian. He's a he's a surgeon now. He's probably overthinking some things at times. I know I was at times, um, and and those guys were able in big moments to, and it, and it probably comes from confidence also. But they were able to relax and do the job in the big moments. Right. And my best moments in my career were at levels where I felt like I was one of the best guys. So when you go down to the NORAM level mm-hmm. or the Japan uh, Japan Cup, which is just below World Cup for, for uh, Asia, and then Europa Cups at, at a couple different times when you just look around and feel like I'm as good as these guys. And sometimes you can still feel pressure because you feel like you should win in that sense. But other times it just makes you feel like I'm in the hunt. I've got what everybody else has and you just relax about it. Whereas some people are able to make that jump at the highest level in world cup. And you know, this from golf too, probably happens in football, basketball, when there's so many people trying for so few spots. Yeah. And at the world cup, I convinced myself it was a bigger deal than the people I just raced at a lower level, not too long ago. And they even asked me after several years of watching me beat my head against the wall at the world cup level, you just beat me this summer in a race. How, why is it you're, what do you, you just need to relax more. Just do what you do. Don't try to do more. You're trying too hard. I heard that a lot right. at the World Cup level. So the one characteristic I think that those people have is they are able to have that feeling at the highest level. Yeah. And I don't know that I ever made that jump. At the, yeah. I, I did against those people at the lower levels, you know. Right. People can, I don't know about golf, but I know at tennis, they play down sometimes when they're coming back from injury or they play in lower tours. Yep. And the NORAM series is like that. In the Europa Cup series, you're, anyone in the world can join, jump in those races if they're doing a tune-up or something. And so sometimes they'd have great races against people in those at that level. Yeah. But I didn't have that, that feeling as much earlier in my career, especially in downhill later. I got it a couple of times where I was one of the guys that could compete. Yeah. Interesting. So... Interesting. So how do you, uh, I mean, you have now two, two sons that are both successful ski racers. Um, one skiing at DU, correct? Mm-hmm. Freshman and, there. And another is, um, obviously very good as a bright future. How do you, how do you take what, what, what you were just describing? Is there, is there, are there any ways that you impart that knowledge to them? Like it's a bigger question here. I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated in knowing sort of the whole progress of, of how you, uh, 
you know, went through uh, parenting and coaching, and that's such a fine line there. But what well, are Wendy and I always? Uh, we moved here so they'd have a chance to do what they're doing. We didn't know if they'd ultimately want to do it, but we kind of took them skiing. Some people would say you're pushing them. We just did it as a family, and if they said oh, we don't want to go, we'd say, well, that's what we're doing. Of course, if it wasn't going well and they were crying, we'd pull back and come home. If they wanted, you know, if they gave it a couple runs when they were four or five years old and just it was too cold out, we'd come home. But we just wanted to get in the habit of this is what we do on the weekends. And we always knew that we didn't. We we raised our kids to know that we cared about their effort and that results were not what we were focused on. Um, and uh, I had a hard harder time with my older son coaching him when he got to be 14, 15 because the the, uh, the critical part of coaching was taken too hard. Whereas my younger son didn't seem to care how I said anything. He just listened to what I said. Now that's changed since he's become a teenager and now I have to think about how I say things to him as well. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, I wanted them to know, I was always telling them what I saw and, and loved what they were doing. But if you want to get better, this is something you could improve. But as far as the results go, we, we never tried to put emphasis on that. Uh, we always tried to put emphasis on the, on the effort. And I'll tell you a funny time with my younger son, Cooper, he had just won a race up at Steamboat Mountain or up on Mount Werner and uh, on the all out trail and beaten some kids his age. Um, but he appeared to me to be cruising through and not giving it his all. And, um, and I got frustrated with that because I, I we always wanted him to know we want you to do your best. Right. And I thought he knew he could win without doing his best and just wanted to win without doing his best. And so he admitted so much when I asked him why he looked like, he said, well, I don't need it. And I said that there's a lot of people out here putting this race on, you know, your parent, we got up early to get you breakfast and get you up here. I'm helping with the race. We're not interested in watching you cruise down. <laughs> we want to see you do well, do your best. And I'm saying this in front of the parents who are starting to get uncomfortable thinking I'm, I'm hammering the kid that won the race and how can he do that? He won. Yeah. But I would have been much prouder of him in that instance had he been tied for fifth with an all-out run where he made it to mistake and overcame adversity to get fifth than yeah. to cruise down easily and take first by two-tenths of a second without trying and breaking a sweat. I just wasn't motivated by that. I didn't think any of his coaches were motivated by that. And I want to let him know that. And when he got oh. down to the awards, he was telling himself, I'm, I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going to try a lot harder tomorrow. Wow. And so those are times when yeah. you have a chance to impart what you believe and whether it's right or not, I don't know. Yeah. But we just wanted to make sure the effort was always there. Yeah. No matter how we did or yeah. no matter how they did. Yeah. That's fascinating. Do you feel like, um, and this is kind of an open-ended question to all sport. I'd just love to kind of hear your opinion on this because we talk a lot about in, in, sports psychology circles and performance coaching circles, you know, kind of the, the quote unquote joke is that behind every successful athlete, there's usually a strong parent. And in this day and age, do you think it's possible for kids to be successful in athletics without uh, a strong parent? Yes, I think it's possible. I don't write anybody off in that respect. And I think I've had examples in my career where I've seen it and it's pretty well documented that Bodhi's parents were uninterested. Right. 
and I, I, you know, if Bodhi ever hears this, I, you know, I don't mean to speak for you, Bodhi, but that's just what I observed right, right. and what I read about. And, uh, just wasn't a lot of, uh, interest in, in making sure he was well provided for, for the sport of ski racing. He had to make that happen on his own and, and really did. And it turned out he loved it and, and did it a lot and came really great at it. But then you have, you know, I can think back to people, strong parents, maybe didn't know a lot about the sport. My own father's a pretty strong person. Uh, and, and what he hands down, what he thought was important, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't, wasn't a strong ski racer himself. Darren Rolfs had a pretty tough dad, um, and, and actually Darren grew up with a lot of advantages financially and, and wasn't worried about money growing up, but his dad was a pretty strong personality, and so that would fit with what you're saying. But I can see the people also whose parents, you know, maybe not have been real strong or hard on them or anything like that. And, and it just turned out that they did well at the sport. I think what you're saying is probably more this situation and, and, and Bodhi's mm-hmm. situation, probably less, nor less, less frequent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think we're, we're trying to always walk, you know, a fine line between, you know, look, you, you know, you've been in the sport, you know, what, steps need to happen in order for certain things to unfold. And I'm the same way with my kids in golf, like playing golf at a high level. I, I know the, the roads I should have taken or the roads that I did take that led to this, that maybe should have led to this, or these are, this is the shortcut mm-hmm. or, you know what, this is where you need to work hard. Um, and I think that um, it, it's interesting just, just kind of, you know, to, um, to explore that with people because there is an advantage to having a parent that is well-versed in the sport that you're in. There's an advantage. Well, the advantage is I've already, already failed in a lot of different concepts or a lot of different ways of training and saw the ones that worked and the ones that didn't. And we don't have to waste our time on the ones that didn't. And people right. that didn't make a level in golf or skiing may not know what to avoid, or maybe they're just kind of going with common misperceptions they got from a magazine, a golf magazine or a skiing magazine on how to do something. Right. But if you've actually already gone through that whole process and know what does and what doesn't work, you can just discard that and not waste any time on it. I think that's a big advantage is right. knowing where to focus your time. Uh, then things with, with training and how to prepare yourself. There's things that, you know, you know as friends, I'm friends with Tom pricing who, who used to live here and, and who used to be an NHL player and, you know, he, he knew very well how he had to train for an NHL season and he wouldn't waste time on uh, things that didn't help him for that. Um, right. And so that's, that's an advantage. Uh, I see kids all the time who maybe want to focus too much on endurance training as ski racers. And it really just, it's a big waste of time. It does not help them as they get older to ski race better. Mm-hmm. They have to learn to get out of that and actually focus on the things that make them better and make them stronger for ski racing a sport where you really only need to be prepared for 90 seconds, but that is a hard 90 seconds. Right. Right. Yeah. When you go anaerobic, it's something like four millimoles of lactate in your blood. Right. Is when you start to use sugars in your blood and not fat. I got, uh, I think, I think after a 400, you might be around eight or nine. And I remember getting tapped once after a run downhill in Chile at 14. Really? Yeah. So it's, it's hard. There's a lot of eccentric load. There's a lot of resistance training you need to go through. Right. And you you get a lot of lactate in your blood, which is the, it's the uncomfortable part of training. Right. Right. You get that when you're not happy about how you feel. 
Right. And that you get that as a ski racer all day long. But how to how to replicate that in your everyday life is as a teenager gets it, the teenager want to feel that way to prepare themselves. Right. If, if you know they have to know that they have to do that first of all, and whether or not you can ever convince them to do it is another thing. Right. But I think our club does a great job with the coaching and the dry land that they provide gets our kids really well prepared to race. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Well, um, thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Let's do it again. This is just be a start. Sounds good.